Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, and joined by my co-host, Matt DeBear. Matt, um, James Franklin, at the conclusion of this weekend's game, got the deed that shows that he owns the University of Iowa. It's, uh, I, I think he shares custody with, uh, <laughs> with Bill O'Brien. Um, it's, well, it's... And we'll talk about this as we go on, but it's it's pretty remarkable when you consider how much Iowa owned Penn State up until 2010, and then uh, you know, Penn State the 2011 win, and really hasn't looked back. And uh, quite quite the reversal of fortunes from uh, the, the prior decade, given just how Iowa really kind of had their way with Penn State there for for a large or a long run. Yeah, I I got bored before the. Uh... Yeah, I don't, but before we did this a little bit earlier in the day, and I went to the Winsipedia page and decided to look up kind of how the series has ebbed, ebbed and flowed. You know, under Paterno, Penn State won five in a row in the 70s. Uh, they had a little three-game winning streak in the 90s. And then that kind of Iowa reign of terror happened where between 2000 and... Uh, 2000, 2010, they won one, two, three, four, five, eight of nine matchups. And ever since then, uh, there was the 2011 game, ugly game. Penn State comes out on top there. And then it's just been Penn State dominating this series ever since, whether it's been uh, the Bill, what, what is lovingly known as the Bill O'Brien game or any of the last four that have had James Franklin at the helm. Uh, but yeah, we're... We, we could uh, probably talk about that win in Iowa City uh, from 2012 for an entire podcast, but instead we're going to talk about the 2019 victory. Uh, Nittany Lions came out on top 17-12. to 12. Uh, If you're like me and you reject the existence of John O'Neill and you want to say that's 21-12, to 12, I wouldn't blame you. Uh, Sean Clifford, a bit of a weird... Uh, evening for him, 12 for 24, 117 yards with the touchdown at its uh, 52 yards on the ground. Noah Kane, uh, big story of the game, 22 carries for 102 yards and a score. KJ Hamler, seven receptions for 61 yards. And the Nittany Lion defense uh, adopted that tried and true philosophy of Ben But Don't Break, break allowed uh, 356 yards to the Hawkeye offense uh, compared to 294 for Penn State. But those 12 points are eventually all that mattered. And Matt, I think the place where I want to start with this recap is with Sean Clifford. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there were a lot of us that had some concerns about him going into the game against Maryland, basically saying young guy, uh, road game, tough environment, all that stuff. This was kind of the game that I expected him to have against Maryland. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, and I think the... The big difference is, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail, I'm sure, is his first snap in the Maryland game was from what the Maryland what seven or eight yard line, something like after, that. After the the James Johnson interception and like three penalties on Maryland, this was obviously a totally different animal. You know, he gets the ball after it wasn't bad field position by any means, but it wasn't a you know a walk in touchdown. I think they had the ball at the forty or forty five after the whatever punt that was that, that Iowa's kicker put out there to start the game. Um, but it was pretty obvious to me that there were some nerves. There were some um, – nerves might not be the best best description. I think it was almost more too amped up, you know, trying to do too much. Um, you know, the first pass had some time and 
airmail, I think it was Hamler, got a little crossing pattern, and then gets sacked on the next two plays. The first one of which he had, I think it was Hamler again, kind of wide open down the field, but just kind of got caught trying to do too much there, I think, early on. Um, but once they, once he hit a couple of passes and once they got a couple of things going on offense, it, it took about a quarter. Um, he really settled in, you know, you, you mentioned the 12 for 24, uh, and that could have easily been 16 or 17 of 24 with the pass, the, the drop passes. Um, so it, it wasn't, wasn't by any means, a, a, a Picasso. Uh, I thought he was really, really good, really effective running the ball. Um, really good with, with making the right read. Um, so it was kind of a tale of, of, one quarter than the last three for him, but he certainly did did enough to to win the game, obviously. And I think um, reminded me a little bit of um, Trace McSorley in the pit, his his first real true road test against Pitt in 2016, and then a little bit of that McSorley performance from the the 2016 Ohio State game, where yeah, the numbers weren't great, but he he made the plays when he needed him to make plays. Um, more than a game manager, I, that's think a term that got thrown out a little bit during the game in a couple places but um what was really encouraging to me more than than anything was how he rebounded from that start it didn't snowball from there um he kind of you know was able to collect himself make a couple plays the running game got going a little bit and it took some pressure off him and once he once he settled in he wasn't wasn't great but he was certainly certainly effective yeah he started i, I think he started something like oh for five or something like that like you it seemed to me like I liked you saying amped up. Like it definitely seemed like he. I don't know. Like you can never know what's going through a guy's head on a given time, but it did look to me he was just trying a little bit too hard earlier on. Which it's something that happens when you're as young as he is going into an environment as scary as Kinnick Stadium, which they're on top of you. They're awfully loud. Like all these things are working against you in that sort of environment. And I think we saw that first drive is a really good example of it. Sure. He makes the, throws an incomplete pass, but then those second two plays, the ones that ended in sacks, there were sacks where he had time to throw and he had time to do something with it. And he just seemed like he was processing things way, 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 way too fast. And once the game slowed down for him, and once he was able to kind of get into a situation where he was able to just get set, throw the football, and relax, which really happened on a drive that I did not know Penn State had in it. The first touchdown drive, 15 plays, 85 yards. That's not a drive that you think of when you think of this Penn State football team. You think of the big plays, you think of the explosive plays, blah, blah, blah. They went out and they grinded and they made smart decisions. They were able to build a drive. And I think that's, for all the young players, I think that's probably a big thing. For Clifford, that's especially the case. And I'm glad you mentioned his ability to use his legs, Matt, because there was one moment later in the game where it was like a third or 10 or something like that. And I think Penn State, there was like eight minutes left. Penn State was ahead. They weren't trying to kill the game yet, but they were winning and... They didn't want to ha- like put themselves. Wait, no, did that? Was that on the drive where? Yes, there was a third and ten. Ten. It was in. It was ten to six. Apologies. Sean Clifford takes a snap. He looks like he's going to stick it into Noah Kane's gut. He just tucks it and he runs. Like 
he, as the game went on, he just looked so much better. And that's all you could really ask out of him. I'm glad you mentioned a few comparisons to the game manager type thing because I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a good thing for something like this because you want Sean Clifford to be able to win this type of game and he's probably not going to be able to win this type of game uh, or the, that, the upcoming game against Michigan State and maybe not even when they have to go to Ohio State with his arm being able to take the top off the defense. It has to be him doing smart things and I think we saw a lot of smart things. Uh, are, are you worried about the, you know, I, I I think it would be good to just say I'm not too worried about the fact that he put up meager numbers again, 12 for 24, 117 yards, uh, one touchdown should have been a second one with the Pat Fryermuth uh, overturned call. But do you have any concerns about this being the Sean Clifford that we're going to see in big games down the stretch, or do you think this is one of those things where he had to get this sort of game out of the way, and now that he gets to he kind of knows what this experience is like. It's going to make some of those tougher road games on the horizon a little easier. I think it's it's so easy to forget because you know he's been around the program for so long, and he's had so many big time performances up until this point. Um, sorry, I just saw your boy Aaron Judge nearly put one out over in right field. Oh, brother! I so needed he, my mic right away. I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I am. As North Jersey scum, I'm a Yankee fan of there currently in the top of the sixth inning against the Houston Astros, and it's due to two. So if at any point you can hear like, cra- like clapping or like under my breath going like, let's go or something like that, it's because a good Yankee thing just happened. But yeah, Matt, apologies. <laughs> well, back back to the topic at hand. Um, it, it's so easy to forget because he's looked very un-first-time starting quarterback for really long stretches this year. And it's easy to forget that this was just his sixth start and really his first start in a, a true hostile environment against a, a really, really good Iowa defense. Um, and I want to I want to talk a little bit about what that Iowa defense, I think, kind of did to what Penn State was hoping to do, or even what Clifford was trying to do. They, I'm going to make a very bad comparison here, but I think there's some some relevancy in it. They're very similar to, I think, what Tom Bradley ran at Penn State, where they're they're gonna you know, let you dink and dunk them. They're gonna you know let you go down the field, but they're not going to give up that big play. They're gonna make you put together that 15 play, 85 yard drive that's gonna take six minutes. It's gonna make you convert three or four third downs because um, you're just not going to beat them over the top very often. Um, I don't even know if there's a, a throw that Clifford made down the field more than 15 or 20 yards. Nick will have that on the site in the next couple of days once he sobers up and uh, does the, the, the passing chart. <laughs> but but I think it was a good experience for him and probably the offense as a whole to kind of realize that that, that big play isn't always going to be there, that you have to to put together that, that 10, 12, 15 play drive sometimes to, to make the score. And then they got the help from the defense later on with the short field on on the, the two subsequent scoring drives that should have ended in, in two touchdowns instead of the field goal and the touchdown. Um, it really, I think, was a, a an important lesson. That's something that they can recall on. And it's something that we'll talk about going forward, not just today, but going forward the rest of the season, that being able to grind out a win like that isn't necessarily as great as, as Miles Sanders and Saquon Barkley and Trace McSorley and, and those guys were 
I'm not sure this kind of grinded out, you know, run the ball, put together those big drives is the kind of offense that those guys were able to put together consistently. Um, now how that result, you know, how that plays out against, you know, Michigan this weekend, Michigan state, Minnesota, Mich- uh, Ohio state down the road, where they're going to be challenged to at least this degree, if not more is anyone's guess, but they were able to win the kind of game that I'm not sure Penn state was comfortable playing or comfortable winning in that way in the last couple of years. And I think that's really encouraging that, yeah, we know they've got the athletes. We know that Hamler can, can bust out that big play. We know that they've got guys that can beat them deep, but this was similar to the pit game in a sense, but it was, it was just the level of patience, um, just winning a game in a different way. And a young team realizing that they were going to need to go about this a little bit differently than they probably were expecting to going in. Yeah. I mean, I can think off the top of my head, like two throws that Clifford made that probably traveled 35, 40 yards in the air, but both of them were because he was like, he was just throwing them to the sideline. It was the KJ Hamler one where he scored a touchdown and the Jahan Dot, one to Jahan Dotson where he just got nuked by AJ Epinesa and Dotson went up and made a play. But like in terms of actually having to like stretch the defense, no, we didn't see that and it it was really impressive that Clifford was able to win that kind of game because I again I did not know that Penn State was had it in them to just grind out a win and I think we saw that and I think a big reason why we saw that is uh, because of the running backs particularly Noah Kane who his second straight 100-yard rushing game. Uh, Matt, your goal as I uh, as I kind of set the table here is to go back and look at Saquon Barkley and look at when he had the first back-to-back 100-yard rushing games of his collegiate career because Noah Kane just did that uh, 105 yards last week against Purdue, 102 this week against Iowa, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of conversation about how Penn State should rotate its running backs, and I'm very interested to see what uh, Dan Snap counts end up saying. Uh, but in terms of just carrying the football, uh, Kane had 22, Devin Ford had four, uh, Journey Brown had four, and Ricky Slade had four. It seems pretty safe to say that Noah Kane right now is Penn State's top running back. Um, a fun fact that I shared with Matt before this started was that his six carries are the moat are tied for the uh, fourth most or no, sorry, fifth most in the Big Ten. The only guys ahead of him are Jonathan Taylor, Justin Fields, Anthony McFarland, and Dedrick Mills at Nebraska, and he is tied with J.K. Dobbins and. He and Fields are actually tied in terms of uh, carries. Noah Kane has carried the ball 57 times and has six rushing touchdowns. Matt, it seems to me, again, Noah Kane is Penn State's top running back. Do you? We were talking a bit about how you want Penn State to kind of handle its running back situation going forward. So uh, after you report on the homework that I just gave you, can you kind of break down what you want to see out of Penn State's running backs? Uh based on what we've seen so far and got confirmed during the game against Iowa? Well, to, to answer my homework question, I'm glad you you led me into this well enough to give me time to, to look it up, but it was actually in his second and third games. He went for 115 against Buffalo. 
in uh, a 27-14 win and then uh, went for 195 against Rutgers the following week uh, with three touchdowns between those two games. So a little bit earlier, but he did not do it again, uh, I believe, that year, going back-to-back 100 yards. So, um, But to, to the Noah Kane question, um, I I don't have as big a problem with the, ro- the rotation in general that I think a number of other folks do. Um, I think sometimes it feels a little bit forced, but especially early in games, I, I get the feeling that a lot of it is just trying to figure out who has the best matchup. And, and right before we went on the air with this bill, you and I were talking a little bit about, about this question. And I think with where Penn state's offense is and where the offensive line is at this point, Noah Kane just fits the best. He's not, and I mean this in, in the absolute best possible terms, he's not a flashy guy. Uh, um, he's not a guy that you expect is going to, to break a, you know, 50 yard, 60 yard touchdown run. He's not the, you know, Miles Sanders or Saquon Barkley home run hitter kind of back. But what he is and what he, how he fits so well is he gets the ball, he makes one cut and he goes, he's, he's a very straight ahead runner. And that's, I think where there's a bit of a, a, a disconnect almost in a sense between Brown, um, Slade, and to an extent Devin Ford. I think Ford is his his freshman inexperience is almost beneficial in a way where he, um, you know, he's he's a patient back, but he's not he's not a back like Brown or Slade, where I think they're a little bit more trying to make guys miss, trying to hit the big play, and sometimes that can backfire a little bit. I just don't I, think I, I was going to say. I believe our pal Sean Fitz said has like mentioned that he believes of all the running backs in that running back room, Devin Ford is the most talented. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And I think it's, um, I mean, look, you're going from from a high school program to a college program at Penn State's levels, it's a big leap. You know, you 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 take for granted how how easy Saquon Barkley made it look. Um, and it makes you, you expect everyone to be able to do that. And it, it, it underscores just how good Barkley was. Um, even Miles Sanders, you know, played as, a little bit as a freshman, you know, rotated in behind Saquon. He had his, his struggles, you know, it's, it's a, an adjustment and it's not just running the ball. It's picking up blitzes, picking up rushers, uh, being an effective receiver out of the backfield. I think those other three guys are going to have roles to play in the, the next six games and, and beyond, depending on, on how things play out. Um, but I think with where Penn State is right now and the way they have proven they can, they can be a, a, a productive offense, Noah Kane's the best fit for that. And, and you saw, I mean, he's getting two-thirds of the carries um, certainly this week. And I think if you go back and look at it, you know, it's probably unfair to go back and look at most of the other games because they've been, you know, such huge margins into the second half where the rotation really is non-existent. So I think the fact that he was the guy that saw 22 carries against Iowa was on the field when they had to put the game away tells you where he lies in the staff's eyes at this point. Um, but like I said, I think all three of those other guys are going to have moments this year where they're going to, to need to come through because you know, I'm looking at Saquon Barkley stats here in front of me after those. Uh, and again, this is a little unfair because he had the injury against San Diego state, but he had a, had a back to back 
uh, 20 carries, 100 under 100 yard games against Maryland and Illinois as a freshman, and then had a a 15 carry, 68 yard effort against uh, Michigan later that year. So it's you you forget that as good as he's been so far, he's still a freshman. This is still his first real opportunity to um to 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 be the guy. Um, and all of a sudden, all the attention is going to be on him now going forward. So it's, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself again here. I, I think it's it's great to see a guy that's kind of stepped up and, and taken control of the position like Kane has at this point. But I'd be wary of, of writing off the other three guys at this point. And I think the thing with Kane that makes him such an interesting back is he gives Penn State fan something that it just you know the program just hasn't had in the last few years like for how great Saquon Barkley and I want to be clear so much of running the football is making sure that the people in front of you block that's obvious uh, an obvious huge caveat especially when we're talking about freshman year Saquon Barkley and some of the stuff that he had to try and run through but Saquon Barkley for how great he was there would be plenty of times where he would be met one yard after the line of scrimmage or right at the line of scrimmage, and he just got tackled because that's, you know, that was just the situation that came up. Miles Sanders, that happened with him a decent amount. Noah Kane is a different kind of back in that he just sees a hole, he hits it, and even if he is not going to get 8, 9, 10 yards or break off this huge run or anything like that, he's going to get four or five yards pretty consistently, and we saw the value of that at the end of the game when Penn State was trying to bleed out the clock and kill this game off, and they had Noah Kane in there, and he did an, a, a very, very good job of running for seven yards on first and ten, then running for five yards on third and three, uh, running for five yards on the next, uh, you know, once they it was time to really salt the game away, just all that stuff. They... Trust him in those situations, and that again, that is just something that Penn State hasn't had, and it's nice to see it, especially because end of game situations have been a bit um, not necessarily great in years past. And I also think that having as much talent and not and still trying to figure out who the alpha dog is in that running back room that is a new thing that they have to figure out because for three years it was. Well, we'll say two and a half years because that's when he took the job from Akeel Lynch. But it was, oh, we have Saquon. He's going to be the man. He's going to get the carries. He's going to p- protect the quarterback, whether it's by blocking, whether it's by catching passes, whatever it is. The, they have that for three years. Then Miles Sanders ended up being that dude last year. And this year they came in and Ricky Slade had, you know, he had a few nice moments, but nothing really... Uh, substantive journey Brown, kind of the same thing, and then Devin Ford and Noah Canner, true freshman, and you add in a new quarterback trying to figure out this system. And yeah, I get wanting to be rotation heavy, but we're at the point where I think we can start making some pretty um, confident declarative statements. And I think one of them is that Noah Kane, he's the man right now, and. I agree with Matt's assessment that there are going to be ways for Ford and Brown and Slade to impact the game, uh, and I hope that they're able to take uh, advantage of that, especially in the passing game, because I think all three of them, especially Ricky Slade, have the potential to be really dangerous in the passing game. 
But for now, Noah Kane, he seems he's the running back one, and he's someone I want Penn State to ride throughout the rest of the season. Especially next week, they're going to be going up against a very physical Michigan defense. The week after that, a very physical Michigan State defense. And then down the road, when they're going against an Ohio State team, that their front four is able to win the line of scrimmage, and then they just have linebackers and safeties teeing off on dudes. Kane's physicality is going to be a real asset in those games in the way that the other guys just can't quite do that. But, yeah, let's... Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, Gio Urshela just did a cool thing, which I, I, I'm sorry. We can't pod during Yankees games again. Uh, let's talk about Penn State's defense. Uh, I think that you mentioned, Matt, the fact that Iowa did the bend but don't break thing. Well, I would argue that Penn State did that as well. It came off like they were happy to let Iowa get a you know, do a little bit through the air, but I don't think they ever really seemed intimidated there. And then on the ground, Penn State's never going to be afraid of their opponents. So let's talk about this defensive effort. Like, I think when you look at the yardage, that's a bit of a concern, but what it ultimately comes down to is points. And this was, if not for one miracle grab by Brandon Smith on Iowa's final drive of the game, this was as dominant of performance as we've seen out of this defense all year. Yeah, I think what's different between what what Brent Pry runs versus what Iowa runs is Penn State's defense is much more aggressive. You know, they're they're blitzing, they're bringing the extra man way more than Iowa does. Um, they're playing a lot more man-to-man defense in the secondary than Iowa does, um, which is going to lead to you know the some of those those big plays one-on-one. Um, there were a handful of just kind of ridiculous catches that Iowa made. Um, maybe not as many as what Pitt made earlier in the year, but, but I digress. Um, what just really stands out to me is just how absolutely dominant Penn State remains against the run, especially. Um, it doesn't matter who's in there. It doesn't matter what combinations on the line. It doesn't matter who's at linebacker. You just can't run on Penn State. No one outside of the first quarter or first half of the Buffalo game of all games has been able to move the ball on the ground against Penn State. Iowa averaged the measly 2.3 yards per carry, um, and that's only with two sacks. They only got to Stanley, um, only got him on the ground twice. Um, they certainly affected him way more than that. Um, but they are just so aggressive in the box, and they're willing to to leave those guys on an island and I, you know, they got beat a couple of times. I think Castro Fields, who we might talk about a little bit more, is a little just doesn't look right. Um, Dan's just or touched on it in snap counts the, last week that there's something going on injury wise there, and obviously you know it's not anything serious. It hasn't held him out of a game, but he just doesn't look like he's 100. percent And he got turned around a couple of times uh, on Saturday, and he um, you know lost his footing once or twice. So, um, but. You know, John Reed's been great. I think the safety play has really come on. Um, Lamont Wade in the last two games, I think, really has shown that he's settled into that safety role. Um, but it, this all starts up front with Sean Spencer's group. You know, Shaka Tony um, has turned into so much more than a guy who gets up to the quarterback. Now he's a guy who gets up to the quarterback and screws with you in the run game. Um, Itor Grossmatos, you know, we've talked about him for, for a year now. 
Um, but Robert Windsor, oh my <laughs> God, was he good <laughs> on Saturday. It, it was flashes of kind of what we saw from him in the second half of last year. Um, when he plays like he did on Saturday, it takes this defense to another level. It opens up so much more um, because you get that chaos in the middle of the line and it, it impacts so much of what any offense wants to do when you can't, when the, the middle of the pocket or the middle of the line on a running play is getting pushed back into the backfield, it just it impacts so much. And if if Penn State gets that kind of performance out of Robert Windsor in the last six games of the year of the regular season, then they're going to be you know the, this really really good defense can can go to another level. And they just they have so much depth of talent up front. Uh, PJ Mustafer had the, the forced fumble. Um, that uh, I think have, it was Jan Johnson recovered it. Have you, gone back, you just, have you gone back and watched the forced fumble, Matt? Because I did right before we started. They didn't block him. P.J. Mustafer is the size of a house, and they decided it was good to just weave him unblocked on a running play. Well, and it's uh, full disclosure, Iowa starting, I think there was a starting right guard uh, was out for an injury for the game. So that's, that's certainly notable, but Iowa's always had pretty well coached, pretty effective offensive lines. They're kind of like Wisconsin where they're just always pretty good. And that play in particular was clearly a miscommunication or Penn State caught them with just the right call against the the right call in in their situation. But there, I mean, I can just, you know, name, keep on going down the list. Jason Owe had a massive sack that got called back on a defensive holding call that, we still will never know whether it was a good call or not because ABC did not replay it. But just so many guys, um, especially on the defensive line, had huge impacts. And it's it's really the result of the recruiting that we've talked about over the last couple of years. You've built up that depth of talent where when you take out a P.J. Mustafer or Robert or Robert Windsor, you plug in a, a Fred Hansard. Or when you take out Etor Grossmatos, Jason Owe goes in. You've got so much talent there that as you go two or three deep at, at all four spots, you're not seeing a huge drop-off. And then when you need those guys to make a play late in the game, they're, they've got fresher legs. You don't have guys that have played 80 85% of the snaps on defense, especially in the trenches. You've got guys that have been able to to get a series off here and there, so they're they're more equipped to, to go later in the game. But just a another... The yards are, are almost secondary. I don't think watching that game, I ever got the feeling that Iowa was about to, to expose something on Penn State's defense. Like mm-hmm. you said, Bill, for them to find the end zone, it took just a circus catch over pretty much perfect man-to-man coverage. I don't know what John Reed does differently other than maybe be a couple inches taller. Um, that's that's how Iowa got into the end zone. That was the, the only touchdown that Penn State gave up was on just a – a guy making a play um, that you just kind of tip your cap and go. There, yeah, not many guys are going to make that play um, many times any, with anyone on Penn State's schedule. It, I'm glad that you mentioned the the thought that you never felt like Iowa was going to threaten Penn State's defense because that's I, I think that says a lot about Iowa. Um, there, there is a sentiment among Iowa fans, one of which we can empathize, 
that it seems like there's some nepotism that keeps the son slash offensive coordinator in uh, in power. Um, all we need now is for Brian Ferentz to start uh, writing PR for Saudi Arabia. Neither here nor there. Uh, but beyond what's going on with Iowa, Penn State's just really solid. When you look at all three levels of the defense, up fr- when you can win up front, it completely changes the complexion of the game, especially when you're going against a team like Iowa that wants to be physical along its offensive line, uh, get some running room, that sort of thing. And Robert Windsor didn't let that happen. P.J. Mustafer didn't let that happen. The various defensive ends did not let that happen. And you put that all together, and it makes life so much easier on that back seven. It lets the safeties and cornerbacks get to be a little bit more... uh, you know, they don't have to worry about someone breaking past that first level of the defense. They could just focus on the guys that they have to stop. When you're looking at the linebackers, they could just fly around like crazy. Like I was very surprised to see that Ellis Brooks and Micah Parsons and Cam Brown all had four tackles because they were just free to be able to do basically whatever they wanted with the effort that was put forth by the defensive line. So you put all of that together. And it means that we are looking at a Penn State defense that is going to give them at least a shot in every game they play. Um, I think that was especially evident early, you know, in the first half of this one when Penn State looked like it was kind of, you know, its offense was kind of stuck in first gear. The defense was just able to settle in. It was able, outside of that field goal drive early on, it wasn't really giving Iowa a whole bunch of anything. And... Next thing you know, it's the half. Penn State has that 7-6 to six lead. There was the drive that, uh, you know, Iowa's final drive that ended in the field goal where Penn State was basically gifting them yards on penalties. But when it came down to just what they were doing defensively, like, it, they were subtle. They were good. They were stout. They were able to do basically whatever they needed to do. You get to the second half and... James Franklin has made the point with a young team, sometimes you need half time to make some adjustments. When you get to that second half and you see, okay, the offense has played pretty badly, but we're winning right now, that's a huge boost. And that's something that they can ride out for the rest of the season. And with this defense, like they are going to have a chance in every single game they play. And again, that's all you could really ask for. Uh, also, on you mentioned I will averaging 2.3 yards per carry and Stanley only getting sacked twice, Matt. One thing I want to add, 30 carries, 70 yards, 29 of those came on one play. So you subtract that away, that's 51 carries, uh, I mean, 51 yards on 29 carries, that's about 1.8 yards per carry. It's actually 41 yards, so we oh, just, we just improved on things. Well, 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 let me pull out my calculator real quick uh, that would be 1.4 yards per carry the crazy thing is that isn't an aberration that is what we've come to expect out of Penn State's defense this year and I think they'll get tested a little bit next week uh, Michigan's not good on offense but Shea Patterson can move a little bit and I think Zach Charbonnet is a running back who's going to try and be physical with them uh, I don't know how well that's going to work, but I tend to be a little bit higher on him than I think some other people are. They're going to be tested there. Michigan State, God knows what, probably not. And then Ohio, 
Ohio State, like, that's going to be the test. Ohio State's offensive line is very good, but I have no reason to think this Penn State defensive line isn't going to be able to win some battles in that one. So it seems to me like this team, it's kind of rounding into shape, and we're kind of getting to a point where we know exactly what to expect out of it. Um, The one thing that I do hope more than anything, Matt, is that John O'Neill never calls a Penn State game again because I'm what what's that petition up to the there's literally a petition for John O'Neill to never call Penn State games again what's it at it was 6500 earlier today I've not had a chance to look at it since early afternoon but uh to well, I'll get into the John O'Neill thing in just a second, but just to kind of round out the defensive discussion, they got the two sacks, but they had seven tackles for loss, mm-hmm. and they got credited with five hurries according to ESPN. So, on um, that's what a quarter of of Iowa's plays, something like that. They were they were getting to the backfield, and that doesn't even account for the the one two yard rushing plays. So, just really really dominant up front, I think is is the the story to take away from it on defense. The other story to take away from, from this is, is the John O'Neill game and the, the, uh, the latest John O'Neill game. Yes. And I think, I think it was Greg pickle, uh, of, uh, the, well, Patriot news, Penn live, whatever, whatever they're going by now, um, is the one who, who broke the story as it were before the game that John O'Neill was calling the game. And, the last game I remember him working, I think he did one last year, but I don't really remember specifically what it was, um, was actually the 2017 Ohio State game, which actually saw somehow Penn State benefiting from a review. But he did the the Iowa game earlier that year as well, and there were just numerous dumbfounding decisions made by him, by his crew, by his replay official. Um yeah, obviously the 2015 Ohio State game with the the malfunctioning replay equipment, the delay of game that wasn't. Um, that was 2015 or 2014. That was 2014. I'm sorry. Okay. That was that was at home. Uh, there was the 2012 Jesse James Nebraska game, and I believe, and I I did not have time to look up this quote, but I believe it was McGloin who said something during that after the game that he was told by O'Neill or someone on his crew that you sh- you're lucky you're just you're still playing you're allowed to play football or something to that effect. So look, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. John O'Neill hates Penn state and he's out to get them. I've watched enough big 10 football over the years and watched enough John O'Neill games over the years. This is just who he is, who his crew is. They are confoundingly, confusingly inept at their job. There was, I think it might have been the the infamous Michigan-Michigan State game with the fumbled punt on the last play that led to Michigan State winning where where his crew did that game and Sean McDonough was calling the game for her ESPN. And at one point in the second half, and I don't ask me to remember exactly what it was, but he, just, he had a comment not too different than the one he had late in the game on Saturday that I, en- I was enjoying this game a lot more before we were talking about the officials on every play. And that's just... <laughs> really what it is it's a matter of the officials make intentionally or otherwise making themselves the story and that's really what it became starting with the the Friermuth touchdown that no one to date has been able to explain 
how that was overturned. You know, it, it'd be one thing if it was ruled short on the field and, you know, they reviewed it and they decided to, to uphold it, but it, they had enough supposedly video evidence to overturn a call on the field that from every conceivable angle, every possible angle that ABC showed us at home pretty definitively showed that it was into the ends. And I think, it, I don't know who ABC's rules expert was in the game. It, it wasn't Dean Blandino. I know that Dave much. Chitaya. Who, who said, I can't believe that they overturned it. I thought they would confirm the call. So th- they pretty much went 180 degrees away from, from where the guy that gets paid to, to analyze these things thought it should go. And those guys, of course, aren't, aren't you know, gospel by any means. But it's just, it's, it's frustrating. It's, um, fr- I thought James Franklin handled it about perfectly after the game. They didn't say anything terribly controversial, you know, on, on its surface, but he opened, I, I can't remember who it was who asked the question. It might've been Mark, uh, Wogan, Woganrich, uh, and I can't remember who he, who's he's running for, but, um, he's the one who posted the video at least on Twitter and Franklin opened or responded to the question at first with, the eight penalties versus one penalty. And actually, um, it was actually nine to two, but I think each team declined one penalty at, at a point during the game. Um, but Penn state has been one of the least penalized teams in the country up to this point. And it, it didn't take a, a psychologist to, to interpret what, where James was going with that one. And then, um, he was asked specifically about the fire move touchdown. And if, if he had had a chance to, to discuss it with, with O'Neill or anyone in the crew. And he said he really didn't. And that he, he knows that, you know, he, he, his team wants him to do that. The fans want him to do that, but it just, you know, he has to be careful. And I think that that just says it all. And unfortunately it didn't have a, a really profound impact on the game. Um, you know, Penn state was able to, to, to pull out the win and, and it didn't have any impact on the, uh, on our friends in, in Las Vegas, either Penn state, covered they would have covered regardless that still hit the under so ultimately it wasn't a a huge difference maker but in a game that close when it comes down to one score it can very easily go the other way you know if um you know noah kane fumbles on one of those plays as penn state's trying to run out the clock or iowa elects to onside kick it instead of kicking it deep and all of a sudden they score and they take the lead and they win then that decision has such a profound impact and with so much riding on on every individual game, it's it's astounding to me that this guy continues to get these kinds of assignments. I saw someone during the game say, "Just assign to Rutgers games," because we know a Rutgers game won't have any impact on 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 the big picture at the end. So uh, that's an, that's enough pontificating for me, Bill. I'm sure you have some some thoughts. You'll probably be a little less diplomatic than I am on it, but well, um, it's kind of par for the course for me at this point. You you know, if John O'Neill's calling the game, you're going to have a moment or two like that. And that's just, that's unfortunate. Well, the first thing I want to do is you mentioned the Nebraska uh, play, and you said there was Jesse James. That was actually Matt Weeman, former Penn State legend Matt Weeman, who scored a touchdown, but John O'Neill said he didn't. Uh, They actually, uh, David Jones was able to get this quote. They had a, they were able to get in touch with the Big Ten officials, Uh, And basically say, like, hey, so by any – there's literally one person on earth who didn't think that was a touchdown and that person was in charge of officiating this game. So what happened – and verbatim, here's what Dave Jones tweeted. 
the Big Ten's officials have basically told Iowa communications personnel that the Friermuth overturn was a, quote, judgment call, unquote, and that's that. No explanation of how the process toward the decision was made, and none will be forthcoming. So basically what happened was they called it a touchdown on the field, and then they showed the clip, and they watched it from a million different angles, and every single person went, that's a touchdown, and then John O'Neill, for whatever reason, went, actually, no, I don't think it is, so it's not. John O'Neill, maybe the replay, if it, like what, whatever, it doesn't matter. All we know is that at this point, Penn State, on multiple occasions, has had plays taken from, had points taken off the board, or added to the board in the case of the Ohio State game in 2014, when there was the, uh, there was mul- there were multiple decisions that went against Penn State that led to Ohio State points, because this guy is the official. And if it was as easy as like every ref is bad, which don't get me wrong, every ref is bad to one extent or another, I'd be okay with that. Well, not okay with that. I'd be less mad about that. But the fact that it seems to be a recurring thing with this guy that's where problems tend to come in for me. And like, I just don't know how the Big Ten can continue to trot him out there and expect that they are going to have well-officiated football games. Like, it's, like, it, it's, a, it's a joke. Like, quite frankly, it's a joke. This is supposed to be the... Con- this conference wants to be the best conference in college football. It wants to have someone competing for the national title every year another team or two in New Year's Six games. It wants to have all this stuff, and yet it settles for this bad of officiating. Like, that's just nonsense. We we as fans deserve better than that. The players deserve better than that. The coaches deserve better than that. The universities deserve better than that. Like, this can't keep happening. It is... He is very fortunate. The entire staff is very fortunate that, like you mentioned, that this didn't swing the game in one direction or another because if it did, that would have been a problem. Like, we can't even begin to describe how big of an issue that would be. It should not have come to that. It should never come to the fact that... It should never come to something like that. And I hope, hope, hope that we never see him officiate another Penn State game. Like, he just cannot do that. They need to have better officials whether it's better technology for them when they're reviewing plays, whether that's better education for them, whatever it is, they can't have these guys calling games anymore where they're making decisions this egregious. So that, that is me on my high horse for a bit. Um, I am sure that if the shoe was on the other foot here, I would have been um, happy that John O'Neill was terrible at his job, but it isn't. So I'm going to be mad about it, and I'm going to continue to say, that he just should not be able to call. I don't even want to do the put him on Rutgers games because those don't matter thing. He has wa- he in my mind has lost the privilege to call Big Ten football games. So get him out of here. Like that we we can't have this anymore. Um, I think that's probably all that we could talk about with this without you know starting to like sick people on him to like figure out his address and stuff, which you should not do. I am legally required to say I am not calling for you to do that. Uh, so let's kind of wrap this up by getting back to talking about Penn State a bit. Uh, I want to talk about the team's mindset, Matt, because I think one thing that we've seen out of this Penn State team 
we saw it against Pitt. We saw it against uh, we we saw it against Iowa. There are two big tests this year. We did see it against Buffalo as well. But there's a bit of a naivete about this team, and it's something that I would argue hurt them early on in those games. Like it seemed like they just kind of struggled with taking that first punch from their opponent. But later on, as they had to win games and they had to settle into the game, I think it's something that helped them. What What do you think about this team's mindset and its approach? And now that we're six games through the season, just how they've kind of come from that first game to where they are now. Well, I, I think naivete is a pretty good word to describe it. I'd, you know, in simpler terms, probably just call it youthful ignorance. Um, I'm... I probably overuse the term they don't know what they don't know. Um, but it really is that. I think it's, you know, they, they're, they're young enough and inexperienced enough where they almost don't know any better to, than to just go out there and play football. And, yeah, I think you, know, you get hit in the mouth the first time and it you know, kind of stuns you and it might take you a minute to, to gather yourself for a couple of series in the case of a, a, of a football game. But big picture, I think – you know, heck, if you want to even expound, extend this to non-sporting endeavors, the more kind of you know laid back, you know, it, you know it is what it is attitude you can take towards anything in life. I think it's the better. I think you're more comfortable, you're more at ease, um, and you just go out there and you do what you're supposed to do, whether that's you know, you know, us on the website writing an article or Sean Clifford throwing the football around or reading the defensive end on an, on an RPO. Um, I like it. I think it's it, it can be a benefit to a young team to just not know any better, not realize the, the gravity of the moment. Um, and I think that's probably overstating it. I, I Obviously, you know, when you go out, out there and it's 17-12 and there's two and a half minutes left in the football game and you know, hey, they've got three timeouts left. If we can, you know, make them burn all three of those and get a first down, this game's probably over. You're aware of that, but I think it's, there's a, a, a combination of that, that naivete and confidence in a sense that we don't know any better, but we know we're pretty good. Um, we know what we've got in this locker room. We know that we've got a bunch of guys who are good at, at what they do. And we're not going to get let the, the gravity of the moment affect us. And in a lot of cases, I don't think they totally buy into the gravity of the moment. Um, and we'll, I, I don't we'll learn more about scared. it. I, I really don't no, think this no, I team ever gets really scared. I think you watch um, any any of the the big time teams around the country. Um, I think you saw Georgia get a little tight against South Carolina on Saturday in that loss. Um, you know, Jake Fromm threw a couple of interceptions. The, the final one that went off a receiver's hands. I think some of that can be broken down to kind of succumbing a little bit to to the the seriousness of the moment, the, the importance of, of overtime in a, a mid-October college football game when you have the playoff aspirations. I think you watch Clemson. I think you watch, I mean, heck, you watch LSU against Florida last night. That team had zero cares in the world. They went out and they played like it. And I don't think it's, it's I've, I've spent a lot of time right now talking about how a lot of that's a byproduct of youth. I think that can also be a byproduct of confidence and, and talent. And that's a really potent combination when you 
you don't let the the moment get to you and you have the talent to to take advantage of that that's that's really you know what what the best teams do and you know you can talk about numbers and clutch genes and and you know dumb things like that but there's there's something to be said for having the mindset to just go out and play regardless of the circumstance and i think that's what you see this is a pretty relaxed team i think it's a team that really really likes each other um you know i know we're not going to talk a lot about the john sutherland thing and the shirts before the game but that's the sign of a team that's really really close guys like each other guys want to play for each other and not that last year's team didn't have that but when you compare it to the 2016 and 2017 team and what we've seen through through a couple months with this team it's a big difference and i think all that stuff plays into it and and again when you combine all that that mental mental stuff with the the physical talent you can get something really special. And if, if Penn State goes out and wins these next two games um, and gets through this this mid-October stretch that we all had circled going into the year, um, and they're 8-0 at you know whatever time that Michigan State game ends in a couple weeks, um, who knows where this is going to go? You get a team like that that's going to go into a bye week and you know 8-0 probably sitting right on the precipice of the top five at that point. And I'm getting really ahead of myself here. But that's a really, really powerful thing when you combine it with with the talent that is on this team. So um, that's really, in, in, in a, so many words, why I'm really, really excited about what's coming um, on Saturday against Michigan and, and two weeks against Michigan State because it's not a huge stretch at this point to say Penn State can be you know, one of those legit contenders at the end of October with what we've seen to this point and what we've seen from from who's on the schedule the next two weeks. Yeah, I mean, even if this is a down year for both Michigan and Michigan State, being able to have, uh, the concept of being able to have under your belt three three wins of the caliber of at Iowa, Michigan, at Michigan State, just on name recognition alone is huge for a program that, like, fair or unfair, and I tend to believe this more unfair, there is the perception that James Franklin hasn't been able to win one, and he hasn't been able win the big one. He hasn't been able to put away wins. Like everyone points to the Ohio State games for the past couple of years, or the Rose Bowl, but the perception of James Franklin's teams is one that when the going gets tough late in games, they're not going to be able to do what they have to do to play winning football. And that's why I think the game against Pitt was so big. That's why I think the game against Iowa was so big. And I think we're going, I really do think, and of course I am biased here, we're going to see that this pay off against Michigan and hopefully against Michigan State. Like this team is just in a really, really good spot right now. And I think that when you are in the position that Penn State finds itself in right now, only good things could come. I, especially because I think, as I've sat back and I've kind of mulled this over, I think they're probably going to end up beating Michigan pretty comfortably. And then Michigan State, um, how do I put this delicately? I don't know where their points are coming from. So you put all that together and 
this is shaping up right now to be a really special season for this Penn State team. And I think that they're too young. I, I think when you're a young football team, one of two things can happen. Either you're too young to know how to win games or you're too young to ever be scared of the situation that's put in front of you. And I think this team, we have enough evidence to say it's that second one. Um, and also, I want them to keep posting videos of them celebrating in locker rooms and on planes for the rest of eternity because they are very good at that. Um, oh, I, I, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about this team just has fun. They like each other. They do. Uh, but, which isn't I to think... say, we, I, I want to stress, like, this, we don't have any... In, like, we don't have inside information that, like, last year's team, there was a big civil war among all of its players, right? No, no, no. This It's just that this team seems like it has something really special that it's hard to replicate. Yeah, and it, it reminds me, and I'm feeling you and I talked about this before the year, that even some of the social media stuff, you know, the guys clowning on each other on, on Instagram and Twitter and, and everything, reminds me so much of Yokosuke know, and Deshaun Hamilton, and th- those are kind of the, the two two primary guys from those 16 and 17 teams that were doing that. But it's just, it's a, a level of camaraderie that is hard to, to put in to, to quantify certainly, but it matters. And like you said, not that last year's team didn't like each other just for whatever reason, they're just never really felt like there was that, that chemistry that, that this team has. Well, and I, I would like to pause. You, I, I hadn't really thought about this, and it, you know, now it, now that I think it does make a lot of sense. What did we basically say about last year's team? We said that it was a young team. It was a team that, if not for the fact that they had Trace McSorley at quarterback, was going to look really, really young at times. Well, they still looked really, really young at times, and it seems like this team is kind of reaping the benefits from guys kind of cutting their teeth a little bit last year even if the timelines and things are a little bit weird because of who was the quarterback last year and all the experience that he had versus how young the guy is under center right now. Oh, for sure. Um, but, but I think, I think James Franklin and his staff deserve, deserve a ton of credit for that. Um, James looks like he's having as much fun as he's had since he's been at Penn state through these first six games, you know, the, the celebrating every win, the, the social media stuff, um, you know, what we saw of him on the HBO show last week. Um, if this is just, this is a fun team to watch. It's a fun team to root for. Um, they're, they're great guys, um, above everything else. Um, and that, you know, it's not the whole success with honor, you know, be great in the classroom stuff. They're just, they're good guys that are having fun and easy to root for. And, and again, that's not to say anything negative about previous versions. It's just this group through six games and, and a couple months of football has just been been an enjoyable enjoyable group to, to follow and, and cheer for. So I think that's uh, that's it for Penn State talk on this one. We'll, we, we've gone a little bit long on this one, so we'll just do Big Ten chat and wrap things up pretty quickly. Uh, first up, in Camp Randall, Wisconsin, 38, Michigan State, nothing. Um, to quote the great Stephen A. Smith, uh, he once said this about Carmelo Anthony, and I'm going to give it a slight little spin on this. Um, Michigan State is bad. <laughs> it's, 
I, I watched a fair amount of this, given the other games at the same time, and my, my fiancé's real interest. I don't think so. Again, it, it was once it got to 21 or 28 nothing, I was I kind of lost interest in it. Um, but they just, like you said, Bill, I don't know where the points come from, and they don't have that go-to guy like they've had with Felton Davis. Um, I don't think Lewerke's a bad quarterback. I just don't think he's getting any help from any of the other 10 guys. Um, and he's taking a beating again. And it's just, they, they can't do anything on offense to keep their defense off the field. And I think they're the one thing going in their favor is they've got this week off, which if nothing else is going to give guys a week off. <laughs> um, I'm not sure they're going to solve all their problems with, with the bye week but they're at least going to be able to catch their breath a little bit and, and rest up. But, um, I've, I don't know where they go from here. <laughs> this, this could get sideways really fast for them. Yeah. I mean, more than it already has. It, it's so weird because they limited Jonathan Taylor in a way that no other team had this year. 26 carries, 80 yards, two touchdowns, Jack Cohn, 18 for 21, but it was for 180 yards and one touchdown. So it's not like he did a lot. It's just, this offense is so bad. And like, I really hope they don't beat Penn State this year because if if they beat Penn State this year, then I think it, that does become a very serious thing. But nah, they're ugh. I, I hate this team. I hate talking about them. I hate having to consume their games. Just all that. Um, moving on, Michigan um, stopped playing for a minute against Illinois, so that forty-two twenty-five might be a touch misleading, but. At the same time, Illinois putting up 25 points on that Michigan defense, not bad. I had actually, we or I was out to lunch, running some errands on Saturday during the early games. We were at lunch, and it was 28 nothing when we left. By the time I got home and we had turned ATV on, I think Illinois was about to cut it to 28-25. I think that was the point where we tuned back in. And we're we're fascinated by by what had transpired. Um, you know, Michigan outgained them almost two to one. You know, it was more turnovers for Michigan that really you know let Illinois back into the game. But um, it's really hard to take a whole lot from this. Um, and from a Penn State perspective, and say Michigan is is X. You know, Shea Patterson was just eleven of twenty-two. Um, he did have the three touchdowns. Um, Michigan has looked fine against teams they should look fine against, and then just completely out of sorts against teams with a pulse. So, it'll it. We'll talk about this as the week goes on, but I'm I'm really curious to see what Saturday brings and what uh, Michigan's latest test. So they've got Notre Dame the week after, and you know, talking about things getting sideways fast, um, you know. If if they fall to Penn State and then lose at home to a pretty good Notre Dame team, then um, you know they're staring four or five losses in the face themselves. Yeah, I mean Wisconsin, and then if they are to lose to Penn State and then Notre Dame, there's three, and they are going to get worked by Ohio State. So only well, still have to play Michigan State play, and, mm-hmm. and 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 Antonio's Dark Arts and, oh, and things along those lines. And they got to go to Indiana, which is Indiana's a real good football team this they, year. They have so. to go to Maryland, who I, you yeah. know, Maryland's not great, but. Maryland can score points if you're not paying attention. If Michigan's offense isn't, like I said, this this can get really bad really fast in the state of Michigan for mm-hmm. for both 
uh, Michigan State and Michigan. I mean, the one thing that it does seem like they figured out, I mean, they rotated their running backs a bit. I mean, they gave 18 carries to Zach Charbonnet, 12 to Hassan Haskins, and 10 to True Wilson. Maybe that's something they continue, but yeah, I, I'll be... Uh, I, I think Penn State has the potential to make a statement this weekend, and I hope they do, uh, but I'm also very biased in this endeavor. Uh, Rutgers 35, Rutgers uh, allowed 35 points to Indiana. Indiana 35, Rutgers nothing. Uh, Rutgers, one passing yard. Um, they're bad. Uh, Indiana, all credit to them. The Hoosiers are a really good football team this year. They're 25th in SP+, plus, uh, 23rd in offense, 32nd in defense, 14th in special teams. Like, this is an impressive Indiana team. Having said that, it is hard to take a single thing away from a team beating up on Rutgers. Yeah, I think, um, I don't remember the stat, but it was something like in 45 Big Ten games or something like that, Rutgers has been held to under some absurdly low passing total <laughs> more times than any team in any level of football should be. Um, I don't know if it was 10 yards or 50 yards or something, but um, I don't know who in their right mind considers taking that job. Um, not not only do you have a lot of work to do when you get there, I don't know how you get there. Yeah, I mean, Nick and I, we spoke about this a bit on the last edition of the podcast, but their interim head coach right now, uh, Nunzio Campanile, he came to them from to the offensive coordinator at Don Bosco prep, the head coach at Bergen Catholic. Like that guy has as good of a resume in New Jersey football as there is. That might be the best job that, that, that is about as good as you can ask for if you're Rutgers, because like, I can't imagine Joe Moorhead takes that job. I can't imagine Pat Narduzzi takes that job. Nothing like that. It's just bleak. Um, Speaking of bleak, Purdue 40, Maryland 14, um, these, the I know the Terps had to start back a quarterback Tyrell Pigrom, but they couldn't get much of anything other than Pigrom going on the ground. They couldn't really throw the ball. Jack Plummer had a very nice game. Uh, the one-two receiving punch of Bryson Hopkins and David Bell went off. Like Purdue needed this one, but Maryland, look alive, guys. You need to be better than that. It was. Um, I'm gonna talk about Purdue just for a second because I think Jeff Brom deserves a ton of credit with everyone that they've got out. Um, that's not a great Purdue team, but Jeff Brom can coach, and he's he's gotten a lot out of what he does have. Um, they're they're a really good team at home um, compared to what they are have been on the road over the last couple of years. Um, I put this somewhere out on on the internet on on Saturday night, but. Purdue is a really well-coached team that doesn't have a ton of talent. Maryland is coached by Mike Loxley, and that's that. Just kind of sums <laughs> up my my overall uptake on that game. That that was a game that, on paper, Purdue had no business winning, and certainly not by the, the three or four scores they did. Um, but full credit to to, to Brom and his guys for for how they played, and um, Maryland just oh. How? How do you let that happen? Final game. Uh, speaking of questioning how things happened, uh, Nebraska, not as good as everyone thought they were going to be. I picked them to win this game because I kind of thought maybe they 
you know, I thought maybe they'd have a bounce back. And, of course, Adrian Martin misses out. But even still, 34-7 uh, Minnesota over Nebraska. Huskers look bad. Uh, Golden Gophers look great. Tanner Morgan is a very uh, incisive quarterback. Rodney Smith is a very good running back. They were able to really do some fun stuff up front of the offensive line to their defense. Their defense didn't let uh, Scott Frost's offense get going on on the ground or in the air. So that Minnesota game, uh, Penn State has to travel there. That's going to be a really tough one. Uh, all credit to them. It seems like the Golden Gophers, just everything is clicking for them. And by the t- when the Nittany Lions come to town, there's a really good chance that they're going to be undefeated. Yeah, I think I saw they they have made the top twenty five for the first time in uh, in quite a while at twenty or twenty one. I think is the number I saw. Um, they remind me a lot of of Iowa um, and almost a poor man's Wisconsin, where they are going to run, run some more, and then kill you with play action pass. They they went to the air just thirteen times in this game. They ran the ball uh, forty nine times for over three hundred yards. Um, I still think you know, Penn state perspective that Penn state's defense matches up really, really well with them, but full credit to PJ Fleck. And you think about where this team was a couple of years ago when he got there to where they, they are now. Um, and they've, they've got four really, three really tough games to, to end the year. Um, Penn state, Iowa, Wisconsin, and the Northwestern's in there as well. Um, but I mean, this is a team that's probably going to win at least eight, maybe nine, 10 games, and is just going and going to continue to trend up as long as they hang on to PJ Fleck. He's he's proven he knows what he's doing. And um, Scott Frost, uh, you wonder how long the 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 shine is going to stay on him after a really disappointing year last year. Um, I think everyone realized that they weren't anywhere near where they wanted to be, but. Um, the way they finished that and the way where they're sitting right now, um, and yeah, Martinez was hurt, but there is a lot of work to do. They're, they're probably, what, the fourth best team in that division at this point, would you say? Yeah. At best? Yeah, I'd pro- I really don't ever want to watch them have to play Northwestern, but like I guess maybe that could be for fourth, <laughs> but yeah, whatever. Ugh, God damn it, just... I hate this Nebraska team. Like it, it, it just seems like it. It just seems like everyone expected them to be good because Scott Frost was really good at UCF, um, without realizing that they're built. But he also did such a good job at UCF. Like how he turned that place around. I, I don't know. It's. I I think they'll be fine. I think same. it just it's. I hope that they that Nebraska has patience. I think he's the one guy that they will. But I mean, I don't even know if you can say next year they're going to be where everyone thought they were going to be this year. There's just so much ground to make up with. Certainly Wisconsin, and I would even argue um, Minnesota and Iowa in that division. And it's just um, I feel bad for Adrian Martinez. I'm not sure he's going to be alive to see see this by the time it comes around. The way he's the beating he's taken over you know a year and a half. So yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's it for today's edition of the podcast. Went a little bit long. Hope that y'all enjoyed it. Anyway, as always, make sure you're liking and subscribing 
uh, to the pod and our various podcasting platforms. Hop on over to YouTube. Leave us a quick five-star review if you'd be uh, so inclined. Make sure you're following us on our various social media channels and make sure you keep reading and supporting the site. And the best way to support the site, as always, is to make sure you are buying some of our shirts. And yeah, I think our dreams of having a new shirt come out anytime soon. It probably went down the tubes, but knock on wood, we might have something fun for you sometime soon. But until then, please, uh, again, keep listening and reading and supporting and doing all of that. And I hope you all enjoyed this edition of the podcast. And for my co-host, Matt Bear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.